This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Uliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind, a podcast about maternal mental health from conception, pregnancy, to birth and postpartum. Real stories from moms and family members who've made it from struggling to wellness, and interviews with experts and advocates who work for moms and families to get the help they need. We discuss very real struggles that can sometimes be hard to hear, but these are stories that need to be told so that moms and families can know that healing is possible. This podcast is meant to offer information and awareness and is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Thank you for being with us today. Welcome back to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. I'm honored to have Dr. Diana Barnes back with us today to discuss postpartum psychosis. This is a highly misunderstood part of the postpartum mental health, and it absolutely needs to be understood and clarified so that mothers get the help they need. We'll go over what is postpartum psychosis, who is at risk, how does postpartum psychosis happen, discuss some of the stigma around postpartum psychosis, and ways to support a mother to get help. Please go back and check out episode seven as well, titled The Good Mother, where Diana discusses the psychological gestation of motherhood. It's an essential and fascinating look into how we become mothers. Diana Lynn Barnes is past president of Postpartum Support International and is a member of the training faculty in maternal mental health now in Los Angeles, as well as the California Statewide Maternal Mental Health Collaborative and the 2020 Mom Project. She also sits as a mental health consultant for the California Commission on the Status of Maternal Mental Health Care. In addition to private practice specializing in women's reproductive mental health, Dr. Barnes presents nationally and internationally and is often retained by legal counsel on cases of infanticide, pregnancy denial, neonaticide, or perinatal illness has been at issue. As an expert witness, she has had close to 60 cases in the last 15 years all over the country, covering everything from pregnancy denial and neonaticide to postpartum psychosis and infanticide to child abuse causing death. So Dr. Barnes has a lot of experience in this area, and I'm very happy to have all of you listeners understand some more about postpartum psychosis so we can all be working from a really rich understanding of how to support these moms. Thank you so much, Diana, for being with us. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me again, Kat. Yeah, you have such rich knowledge here, and I'm so happy to to really help people have a full understanding and a clear understanding of what postpartum psychosis is. So we can start with there. What are some of the fundamentals of postpartum psychosis? 
Well, I think you're absolutely right. It is one of those very misunderstood perinatal illnesses. And I guess right off the bat, one of the things I'd like to say to clarify is that postpartum psychosis is not severe postpartum depression. And I think that often gets misunderstood. As we know, there are a number of different ways in which perinatal mental illness can present. Postpartum psychosis is one of them. It is rare. It only occurs in about one or two out of every thousand women who give birth. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, it is considered a potentially life-threatening medical emergency that requires immediate medical attention. So that's the first thing I want to say is that it is not severe postpartum depression. The other thing I'd like to say is that I think it often gets confused with moms who have obsessive compulsive kinds of thoughts or images. And we often think that, oh, my gosh, that must mean she's psychotic. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another area that perhaps we want to clarify is that when mothers are having these kinds of intruding, ruminating thoughts and images, Mm -hmm. those moms who have more of what we would call probably an obsessive compulsive kind of presentation Mm -hmm. of postpartum depression are going to be really kind of horrified by their thoughts, as we know, in many cases, very embarrassed and ashamed probably don't even want to talk about them because they're afraid their babies are going to be taken away from them. Right. And then what they do as a way of managing these thoughts is that they devise very intricate strategies to mm-hmm. avoid what they believe is inevitable. So right. if I'm afraid I'm going to drop my baby, I'm mm-hmm. probably going to stop holding my baby. Well, right. when we look at moms who have postpartum psychosis, they don't really kind of recognize, once they get really into the illness, they don't really recognize that there is something, I guess, a little off about how they're thinking about things. It starts to become part of this altered reality. So I wanted to kind of clarify, I think, what are two very often misunderstood points. The other thing about postpartum psychosis is that, you know, Traditionally, we kind of thought of it as, you know, moms have these voices that they hear and they have these really, really odd beliefs. And that's what postpartum psychosis looks like. And as we're starting to research it and understand it more and more, many of the contemporary studies are really understanding that it has a very atypical presentation to it. It it kind of looks like a combination of a number of different mood disorders. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that we see, in addition to hallucinations and or delusions, some of the things that we see in a psychotic episode, and certainly that I have seen in my 15 years of experience working particularly in the criminal justice system with these moms, is things like memory loss, Mm -hmm. uh, dissociative symptoms, what we call depersonalization, where there's this kind of split between the body and the mind, and we kind of become the observer rather than the participant in our own actions. Mm -hmm. The literature talks about a tremendous amount of cognitive confusion and disorganization, insomnia, Mm -hmm. agitation, dramatically fluctuating moods from real highs to, you know, profound lows. In fact, we kind of conceptualize postpartum psychosis as a kind of a manic episode. And many times, and certainly in my experience, I've seen this, that many times the seeds of this mania actually begins in the last trimester of pregnancy. 
Mm. So women find they're not sleeping, they're getting up in the middle of the night and they're doing a, you know, a total cleanup of their own home or they're getting on the computer or they're spending money, they're buying things, you know, they're on the shopping network in the middle of the night spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars mm-hmm. on things they don't need and things they can't afford. So this is kind of a new way of thinking about postpartum psychosis that it's really much more than just hallucinations and delusions. And Mm. the other thing I just want to say about that is that while the hallucinations are generally voices, you know, what we call auditory hallucinations, Mm -hmm. they're not always commanding. They're not always directing the mom to do something to harm her child. And that's what most people are assuming that those voices are saying for the mother to harm the child. Okay. Right. And sometimes they are, but Mm. not always. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a lot that can be going on if someone is experiencing a postpartum psychosis. Who is at risk and how would we know some of the factors that might lead up to this, as you said? Well, I think when we're looking at risk factors, the most important risk factors we're looking at is familial history. Mm -hmm. So if this is a woman who has her own personal history of bipolar disorder, or there's a family history of bipolar disorder, that would be the closest link in terms of risk. But having said that, we want to look at anybody who has a personal or family history of, in addition to bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, even major depression with psychotic features. I've just been finishing up a report on one of the cases I'm on, and I just actually was reading the other day a paper about that was titled Missed Bipolarity in Postpartum Depression. You know, that often this is the first onset of a bipolar episode, and it frequently gets missed, and it gets diagnosed as a depression when, in fact, it's a bipolar episode. If someone has bipolar disorder, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have a psychotic episode. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important when we talk about risk that we understand that risk doesn't mean cause and effect. Right. Absolutely. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras' Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? 
And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. And that's a really great point because I know a lot of moms who come in concerned that they're losing their mind or that they're going crazy and will say that to me are maybe having a very difficult depression or very high level of anxiety and not necessarily having the most severe symptoms that would be pertaining to a a psychotic episode. Because I think, you know, when we talk about risk, we're talking about vulnerability. Yeah. So the more risk factors you have, the more vulnerable you are to onset but there is still a difference between vulnerability and cause and effect. Right, absolutely. Okay, so a bipolar disorder in the family. Or a personal history, of course. Some of the other risk factors that we look at are, you know, what is this woman's mood state during her pregnancy? Because we know that's a significant predictor of what's going to go on in the postpartum period. You know, is she having psychotic symptoms? during her pregnancy, this would be another risk factor that we'd want to consider. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in terms of the factors that lead to psychosis, are there other things other than their like a biological predisposition or environmental things that are happening around them? Are there other factors? I think the familial factors, the genetic predisposition is probably the most significant. I mean, if a woman is trying to assess her own risks, I think that's where she wants to look first. Okay. And then, as you mentioned, insomnia has a big... Right. Sleep deprivation. You know, there are studies that say that even in a woman without a history, sleep deprivation, which we know is the number one, you know, issue for most Mm -hmm. new moms, sleep deprivation can actually cause a psychotic episode, but I don't want all the moms out there to now freak out because they're sleep deprived. Right. All moms are (laughs) sleep deprived. Right. And it doesn't kind of happen in a vacuum. So we want to pay attention to these kind of multifaceted factors of risk. So what would a partner or family member be seeing from the outside? How would they know to be concerned? Well, that's an interesting thing because you can't always tell by looking at someone. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes in, you know, when someone is deep into a psychotic illness, you will start to see changes. They may look glazed over. They may look catatonic. Their uh, thought process is very disorganized. But that brings up another issue. That's why this is so nuanced, because postpartum psychosis has been described as kind of a waxing and waning presentation to it. So it's kind of like sometimes you see it and sometimes you don't. So you have to kind of be listening and watching and observing because it's not a chronic kind of state of mood. Okay. So sometimes someone can appear very lucid and then even in the, in the thread of the same conversation, you can start to see the thought disorganization or the confusion. Sometimes what happens is you'll start to see hygiene falling apart. It's more than a disheveled kind of look. Okay, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, we know that new moms, you know, I remember myself certainly not getting out of my own sweats for probably three weeks at a time after right. I was a new mom. 
I think it's so nuanced that we want to be really careful not to cause fear because someone isn't, you know, isn't changing their clothes or taking a shower every day because we know that that's a hard thing for new moms to do anyway. Absolutely. You know, so I think a lot of what you're looking at is, you know, a lot of memory loss, a lot of confusion, a lot of thought disorganization. Okay. So strange, strange beliefs or ideas, exaggerated, highly, highly exaggerated ideas or beliefs about things. And so they may or may not be vocalizing this to partners or family members, the mom who is they, experiencing it. That's right. They may not because sometimes at the beginning of illness, there's an awareness that, I better not tell anybody this. They're going to take my kids away from me. And that's the tragic part of this because this is treatable. Right. And that is what I hope to really wrap this up when we're to that point of wrapping up is to really be very clear that this is treatable and that moms don't have to suffer this way. And I think there's so many mistaken ideas about postpartum psychosis that yeah. that creates such fear just and such havoc, you know, emotionally for a lot of moms. And, you know, one of them is that if you have postpartum psychosis, that means you're going to automatically kill your child. And that's not true. Right. That is not true. It's not true. So this is the Um, stuff that's been kind of perpetuated in part, you know, by whatever media coverage there's been of a tragic situation that's added to the stigma and the damaging nature of how we talk about mothers who are experiencing postpartum illness, specifically postpartum psychosis. So what are those things that you see most regularly around stigma and the damage that it does? Well, one of the things, that one, that if you have postpartum psychosis, that means that automatically you're going to kill your child. And that's not true. Especially, you know, I can tell you that even as someone who has spent the last 15 years on case after case of mothers who've committed infanticide, I can still tell you with great assurance that not all mothers with postpartum psychosis go on to take the lives of their children. I think we also have this idea that a woman with postpartum psychosis is a danger to the larger society. That is not true at all. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at mothers who potentially, you know, may be a danger, it exists within the relationship between mother and child. Okay? Mm-hmm. It does not go outside the boundaries of that. And the other, I think, stigma is once psychotic, always psychotic. Mm-hmm. Right, which is not true. This is which is not true. Right, this which is, is not totally, true. As you said before, treatable moms do get better with the right treatment. Right, and I think we have to recognize that when a woman has postpartum psychosis, it is the psychosis which is the culprit here, not the woman. Yes, it's the psychosis that's to blame, not the woman herself, right. because she is also a victim of a very insidious illness. Absolutely. And when we do see things in the online or in the media or on the news, you know, a lot of the backlash or whatnot is like, how could she do this? Who would do this to their child? You know, what mother would do this to their family? But what you're saying, and I'd like to make it very clear, is that she's not doing this. Her illness has done this. Absolutely. It's reminding me that, you know, many, many years ago, probably dating back to 2001, when the story of Andrea Yates came into the forefront, Hmm. I was interviewed for one of our local newspapers, I think it was the LA Times, and the reporter, his last question to me was, well, how can a woman in her right mind, you know, do a thing like that? Uh, Right. I said, well, that's the point. She's not. Right. Absolutely not in her right mind. 
And so, at that point, the psychosis has taken over. Exactly. And whatever actions are coming after that are not her doing it. It's the illness. Right. And, you know, the other thing about, you know, at least in, certainly in my experience working with the special population of women who have committed infanticide, we're accustomed to thinking about it in those terms as though the baby is evil or the baby is, you know, or Satan is going to get the baby or, but that's not always the case. And much of the time, the voices actually themselves are very critical, demeaning, humiliating voices. And there's some kind of a, kind of an internalized voice that this mom is experiencing, which is putting her down and calling her a bad mother. And so her own feelings of inadequacy become really highly exaggerated. And we know even in postpartum depression, we know that feelings of inadequacy are one of the things that we see very frequently in moms. Absolutely. We feel so bad about ourselves. So this also makes me think of people who have had really difficult times in their lives, traumatic events or things that have happened that have maybe added to those kinds of thoughts about themselves. How does that impact a mom with postpartum psychosis? Well, certainly, you know, for all of us, you know, we are shaped by our experiences. It informs our thinking. It informs our thinking about ourselves. It organizes us in terms of how we see ourselves in relation to the rest of the world. And when we look at women who've had, you know, what we would call childhood trauma, things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, we know now that there is a causal relationship, emphasis on the word causal, there is a causal relationship, causal connection between childhood trauma and later mental illness, including psychosis, because early trauma actually affects brain development. It has an impact on brain functioning, and there's actually kind of a neurobiological change that happens when a woman has experienced chronic repetitive trauma. Mm. So when we as professionals are sitting down with a mom, that's something that we are really needing to pay attention to, understanding as much of a history as possible to see what all is is compounding and affecting her in her perinatal period. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I certainly think, you know, the whole idea of taking a psychosocial history has always been something that as clinicians, we've been told is very important. Mm -hmm. But we've been told that it's important in kind of a general kind of a way. Mm -hmm. But I think as we look, as we see more and more kind of this trauma informed perspective, Mm -hmm. we're now recognizing that when someone has trauma, it's really a significant piece of how they function in the world, right. you know, their, their own feeling of safety. I mean, we know if we kind of were to look at this from an attachment perspective, we know that the first years of life, particularly infancy, is learning about, you know, trust. Can I trust the people in this world to take care of me and to protect me? Is the world a safe place? Am I safe in the world? And when you have a history of trauma, like many of the women that I've sat with, there is no sense of safety. There is no sense that I can trust other people around to be available to me, to protect me, to take care of me. And we take that kind of emotional template, we take that with us through our lives. So even in other situations, after we have children that may be safe, you know, we may not perceive it as safe because it's not the framework from which we operate. 
Absolutely. So for moms who are listening, who have a trauma that they're aware of and know about, then this would be something to pay very close attention to and be seek out support or therapy or whatever works for them in terms of kind of mitigating any stressors that may be impacting them in pregnancy and birth and postpartum. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of TILT is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the TILT Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you talked, you made reference, and I appreciate that you made reference earlier to our last conversation about the good mother and the psychological gestation of motherhood. And I think that our history is an important piece of how we think about ourselves when we are becoming mothers Mm -hmm. and the kind of mom that we want to be. And how often do I hear, I want to be a different kind of a mom than my mom was to me. Mm -hmm. Right. So not only are you learning how to be a mother, you're learning how to be a different kind of mother than one you already know. Right. And that's quite a process. And and of course, we're talking now about women who've had conflicted relationships with their own mothers, uh, who've had trauma in their own lives, who've been abandoned by their own mother. We're talking about a certain kind of population of women. Um, Right who've had a lot of difficulty and that's been shown as what you were saying before is the more traumatic or stressful life events that you have throughout your life, the more you are at risk during the perinatal period for depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, psychosis, bipolar disorder, and all of the things that can happen, but not necessarily happen. Right. So as part of what I'm thinking about as we're talking here is I was able to go to the hearing for Carol Coronado and speak on her behalf. I was there with 2020 mom. And this is a case of a local mom 
who had postpartum psychosis and killed her three children. And what struck me in there is that, well, I mean, it's such a, you know, courtrooms are very cold and formal place. They are. But just you could see how much Carol was suffering. And I mean, that was my first experience of seeing a mom who had already been through something this devastating and tragic and seen her in the process of being sentenced. And it was just heartbreaking to see how much she has suffered, was still suffering, and how hard it must be to be that mother and to be the person who's suffering in such a devastating way. And I, on some level, wanted to bring that into this conversation because of how much really we should be supporting these moms and feeling for them and have empathy for them and what they're going through. She didn't right. want to do what she did. You know, when we talk about Carol Coronado and we look at her own early history, I mean, it's filled, filled with one event after the other, which was terribly traumatic. And so when you come to motherhood already feeling unsafe, it feels like your children aren't safe either. And so there is something called altruistic filicide in which a mother actually takes the life of her children, believing with all of her heart that it is in the best interests of her child and it is an act of love. But, of course, it occurs in the throes of a psychotic episode, so it's very hard for us, as working with our own rationale and logic, to really step into the mind of a psychotic woman Mm -hmm. and put our normal and ordinary understanding of things aside for a moment in order to kind of really literally step into her mind. You talk about empathy, you know, Mm -hmm. and really being able to understand how it is for her. It's so important. You know, we tend to vilify the things that we don't understand and don't know. And that's actually what makes women worse. That's what makes us all feel worse. But specifically someone who is dealing with such an intense experience. And to feel so misunderstood, you know, and I think this is certainly one of the problems that we face in terms of moving ahead with our understanding of postpartum psychosis and the stigmas that are attached to this illness, this very serious illness, because the law looks very differently at insanity than us, than we do mm-hmm. in the mental health community. In the mental health community, we recognize very quickly when someone has an altered reality. But in a courtroom, in the law, in order for a woman to be deemed insane, At the time of the events, she must show that she did not know that what she was doing was wrong. And so the law and mental health are constantly bumping into each other because we have such different perspectives at the way in which we look at psychotic illness. Well, it sounds like, I mean, a lot of the work that you do is trying to make sure that mental health reality is paid attention to and made a serious factor, but also sometimes the law wins out and it's a poorly written law from what I understand. Right. And also to more and more the whole idea, even in the courtroom, the whole idea that we have to understand where a woman came from. She didn't get into this present moment by accident. Right. And we have to really backtrack and we have to look back. And I've even kind of coined the phrase a reproductive roadmap is that we want to look back at her reproductive history because that's going to give us a lot of information. That's going to tell us a lot. 
Right. So for the folks who are listening, clearly, I mean, my goal is to get across that empathy and sympathy and understanding are needed. And that's a lot of the work that you do is going to bat for these moms in courtrooms and where they need expert witness testimony. So you've seen all of this firsthand, which is, and it's so unique. Not a lot of people have seen what you've seen firsthand. And that's why I really think your perspective and your knowledge is so important. And I appreciate it so much. So what are the, absolutely, the take home points, the stuff that you really wish people would understand about postpartum psychosis? I think the take home message is let's not be afraid of these illnesses, you know, but believe it or not, there was a time in our history where we were so afraid of cancer that you, and this is in my lifetime, uh, of course, I'm dating myself now, but uh, (laughs) in my lifetime, we wouldn't tell patients that they had cancer. Because wow. okay, it was so scary. Can you imagine? No. So we need to get to a place where we're not so scared of these illnesses because the take-home message is they're treatable. Right. You know, if we understand them, if we know what they look like, if we recognize them, if we identify during a pregnancy, if we assess for risk, if we pay attention to these moms and their families after they give birth, this is absolutely treatable. Right. And that's the take-home message. Well, yes, I hope that people hear you loud and clear that this is preventable and this is treatable and that there's help available for moms and that they don't have to be suffering and that the family can be a part of helping a mom feel better and get better and get to help. Right. You know, what's scary is not the illness. What's scary, and you used the word before, and I think it is the word, is that we vilify these moms. Mm. You know, we vilify these moms and... That's the tragedy. Oh. And that's the tragedy. It's so sad. Okay. And that is so important to really for everyone who's listening, moms who are not sure what's going on with them, go find a trained professional to suss this out with and get support. If you're a family member, you're concerned about someone in your family, please reach out for help or reach out to an organization that specializes in perinatal mental health to to get guidance. There are resources available for the mom and the families. And I will list as many of those as I can in my show notes for everyone to take a look at and access to get the support that they need. Diana, thank you so much for being on with us today and and really bringing all of your knowledge and compassion for these moms to the forefront. And I know you're doing such important work in the world. And I really hope everyone listening today can take away from what you've said and take it into their communities and help everyone around them be more aware. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Kat, for having me on. By joining us today, you are part of the growing community of people who are aware and concerned for mothers and families during this beautiful and sometimes very difficult time of life. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, help is available. You can feel better. Please look for resources for help at momandmind.com. Together, we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Thank you for listening and being a part of the Mom and Mind community.
it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.